0: Have you ever been on a trip where you were identified as a visitor or a traveler, because of something uh, that you wore, maybe some of your mannerisms, maybe your accent? He said, "You're not from around here, are you?" I was in Detroit one time on a business trip, and if my southern drawl wasn't enough to give me away, I actually had the nerve to ask a waitress for sweet tea. You would have thought I was speaking Chinese. She looked at me so confused and she said, we have raspberry tea, is that what you're talking about? And I said, no, but that'll work. And so I made a vow to my rep that I was eating with. I said, I'm going to order sweet tea at every restaurant we eat at this week, just to see how they respond. And he was just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it made it pretty obvious that I wasn't from the north when I ordered sweet tea. We Christians, when we follow God's wisdom, wisdom that's from above, it should be pretty obvious that we're different, that we're not from around here. In our text this morning in James chapter 3, if you'll turn there, we'll see that James discusses two different kinds of wisdom. He's going to discuss a godly wisdom, and he's going to discuss an earthly wisdom that's from below. And as we study these verses this morning, I want you to ask yourself, where is my wisdom from? Which wisdom am I following in my life? Is it the earthly kind, or is it the heavenly kind? And if you're wondering, how do I know It's going to be pretty obvious when we see the attitudes and the results that come from these two different wisdoms. It'll be pretty obvious. So let's look at verse 13 through 18 of James chapter 3. Verse 13, James says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable gentle and easy to be entreated full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace in verse 13 James gave this challenge for those who are wise and understanding and the the, the idea of wisdom here refers to spiritual wisdom it's the ability to take god's word to take god's truth uh, and apply it to practical situations of life, to live it out. And remember from chapter 1, if you lack that, what do you do? You ask God. You ask God in faith. That's the idea of, of someone who's wise there. It's, they have this, this wisdom, this ability to, to practically uh, put God's Word and God's truth into practice. And he also adds this idea of someone who's endued with knowledge, or you may have a translation that just says Understanding. And this is an interesting word. It actually has the idea of someone who is so knowledgeable or so skilled that they would be considered an expert in their field. Our English word epistemology comes from this word. And these words are related, the idea of wisdom and understanding. There's, there's definitely some overlap here. But if we're going to press a distinction to be made, then it's the idea that wisdom leans more to the moral and applicable side Whereas understanding is a little more on the intellectual and academic side. And it's important though to notice that James combines these two. Both attributes or both characteristics are extremely important. One author says the call is for an individual who possesses not merely academic learning, but also practical, moral, and spiritual insight. See, but what is James really talking about here? Is is this just out of nowhere, somebody who's wise and understanding? Well, remember how James started this whole chapter, how how chapter 3 began. Some people think James is is kind of starting a completely new section here. But I think there's still a relationship to what he's been talking about. He began chapter 3 with this warning that not too many of us need to become teachers. The fact of the matter is that teaching is a major responsibility and therefore teachers will receive a stricter judgment. He talked about that in the opening verses. Since teachers typically use their words to teach, he kind of dove off into this uh, idea of the tongue and how powerful it is and uh, how it can be destructive and how we can be inconsistent with it. And so we want... Teachers, and we want everybody, but especially teachers, to have this self control to be able to control their tongues. And and he talks about that. So we don't need unqualified or unprepared people rushing to become teachers. Who then do we need teaching? We need teachers who are wise and understanding. We need teachers who both know the truth and show the truth. Think about these two sides of this coin here. We wouldn't want someone teaching who lacks one or the other. Someone may live a, a very moral and godly and holy and upstanding life, and that's wonderful. Don't, don't get me wrong. But if they don't have good knowledge of the scriptures, then they don't need to be teaching the scriptures. And the flip side's true as well. Someone may have great knowledge book knowledge of the Bible. They may may win Bible trivia every time they play that silly game. It's kind of silly. Bible trivia, right? That's an oxymoron. They may have an academic knowledge of the Bible, but if they don't live it, if they don't live moral, if they don't live holy, then is that the, the practical example that we want teaching? No, it's not. A teacher needs to be wise and understanding And so I think there's definitely this connection that James is pulling from and and what he's thinking about. And so how do we find these people? How do we find these people that are wise and understanding? Should they come up front and raise their hand and let us know how wise they are and how much understanding they have? No. James actually gives a command to the people who are wise and understanding simply to live it out. You don't have to brag about it. You don't have to talk about it. Just do it. This idea here in verse 13 of let him show, that's a command. And it's from the same word that James used back in chapter 2 when he said, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's that same word. And so James insists that wisdom, just like faith, must be shown. It must be proven genuine by its conduct. Merely claiming to have wisdom doesn't mean you have wisdom any more than claiming to have faith means you have faith. Prove it. Live it. Show it. You say, well, how do I do that? Out of a good conversation, his works. The word conversation here doesn't necessarily refer to your speech, although that's involved... But it's more than that. It's not just how you talk, but it's how you live. It's all your behavior. It's your lifestyle. It's your conduct. It's your way of life. And so think about this. James says that a wise person and an understanding person must show himself to be wise practically through a good life that produces good works. Wisdom is a lot like faith, isn't it? That's how wisdom manifests itself. It shows itself. But this, this good life and these good works, if you notice the end of the verse, these things are nothing to be bragged about. This is not a boastful, arrogant thing. Notice he, he ends this verse with this phrase, with meekness of wisdom. Wisdom not only produces these good works, but wisdom will also keep you meek about it. Instead of being a, a, an arrogant, braggadocious, boastful person about how good you are, wisdom will go a long way in kind of reining you back down, keeping you humble. This word meekness here is, a, is an awesome word. It has the idea of gentleness or humility. And it was a really common word in the ancient world. Uh, we know that the ancient Greeks are, are prized for their philosophy and things like that. And they, they viewed this word As the opposite of someone who had a harsh, quick temper, somebody who was arrogantly selfish. This was the opposite of that, but they didn't feel like it went so far in the other direction that it described somebody, like we might say, without any backbone. Didn't mean you were weak, it didn't mean you never took a stand, it was a balance. Aristotle, the famous philosopher, said that this word was the middle ground between an angry, bad temper and spineless incompetence. There's a balance to be sought. And so someone who possessed this meek spirit is someone who would stand up for what is right and stand up for what is true, but would be able to do it in such a way that was gentle and would be able to do it in such a way that it was humble instead of harsh. Isn't that something Jesus possessed? He never sacrificed truth for love or love for truth. He spoke the truth in love. He stood up for what is right but never in an unloving manner. That's what a wise man does. He doesn't have to tell you how wise he is. He doesn't have to brag about it, but he shows it with his life and with his works, not in this arrogant, self-conceited, look at me, I'm obviously better than you way, but in a gentle, humble, meek way. And that's the kind of person who should be teaching. It's not limited to teachers, though. All of our lives need to fit the parameters of verse 13. We need to be wise and we need to have understanding. We need to live that out in front of others. That's not always the case, is it? Sometimes we follow earthly wisdom. And James gives a description of what it looks like when we do that in verse, <coughs> excuse me, verse 14 through 16. Notice he says in verse 14, but if you have bitter envying, and strife in your hearts. The first part of, of, of earthly wisdom, this description, is these two things of bitter envy and strife. And bitter envy has the idea of jealousy, this harsh envy. Bitter, he's already used this word in this chapter to describe bitter salt water. And now he uses the same word to describe a bitter attitude. It's somebody who is just negative, harsh, jealous, envious. And the word strife, sometimes we we tend to think of the word strife as just trouble or conflict, but it's a little more specific than that. This word specifically means selfish ambition. Not ambition, right? We're Americans. We like ambition. This is selfish ambition. It's it's a self-seeking pursuit, pushing for your own agenda no matter what. Aristotle, again, he used this word to describe a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. We're not going to see any of that next year with the elections coming up in, in 2020. Thank goodness for that, right? A self-seeking pursuit by unfair means. This is a word and, a, and a, an attitude that should never describe Christians. Christians. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he said this Let nothing be done through strife. It's that same word. He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. If you remember the, the context there of Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives this great juxtaposition. Of following earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. He's teaching the Philippians to have the mind of Christ. And so he tells them, don't have this mindset or this attitude that is selfishly seeking your own agenda. Don't let anything happen through strife. And then he tells them to have the mind of Christ. And if you keep reading, the mind of Christ is a mind that became a servant and obeyed the Father's will for the good of others even though it took him to the cross. That's what it looks like when you follow heavenly wisdom. When you follow earthly wisdom, it looks a lot like selfishness. It looks a lot like bitterness and jealousy. And if we think of this in the context of a church, there is no room for selfish ambition and envy not among any of us, and not especially among teachers. A teacher is not wise if he promotes himself or herself, if he promotes rivalry, competition, divisions. It doesn't matter who has the biggest Sunday school class. It doesn't matter who gets to teach in the best Sunday school room. Those things are are trivial. They're silly. They don't mean anything. The goal of every teacher should be to further Christ, not his or her own selfish, personal, proud agenda. If you've ever been in a church where someone was doing that, you know just how damaging it can be when someone pushes their own selfish agenda to the detriment of everyone else. It's terrible. That doesn't end with teachers again. No Christian should manifest bitter envy and selfishness in their hearts. And look at verse 14. That's where the problem is. It starts in your hearts. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, the problem isn't everybody else. It's you. It's in your heart. It's inside. It's not external. It's an internal issue. We need to get our hearts right. It's one of those silly things of if the problem seems to be like everybody else... Maybe it's not everybody else. Maybe it's me. Sometimes we have these issues in our hearts, and it's a heart matter. We need to get our hearts right. And if our hearts are not right with God, and they're not right with each other, but we harbor bitterness and we act out of selfishness, all that does is lead to rivalries and fights and factions. It pits us against each other when we should be for each other if you skip down to to verse 1 of chapter 4 I think this was a problem among the people James wrote to he's going to ask them in chapter 4 he's going to mention wars and fightings he's writing to Christians he says from whence come wars and fightings among you come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members if 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 wars and fightings and, and rivalries and Divisions. if that happens among Christians, especially in a church, it's, it's one of the most terrible and hurtful things. And it's nothing to brag about. He says in verse 14, glory not. I think it's one of these situations when this happens is that um, it's one of those situations where there are no winners. Even if you, quote, win the war at church, I'm going to pause and let you think about that statement for just a minute. Even if you win the war at church. Is that something to brag about? Is that something to be proud of? Don't brag about how zealous you are for God. Having an attitude of bitterness and selfishness is completely contrary to the gospel. Glory not and lie not against the truth. It's inconsistency. It's this inconsistency that James has been uh, harping on the entire letter that disgusts him. To use bitterness and envy and then use that to glory over someone or to brag about, that's completely against the truth of the gospel. It's just like the sin of partiality in chapter 2 to say that we preach a gospel that Christ died for everyone and God loves everyone and anyone who believes and trusts in Christ will be saved and then we treat people completely differently. The rich man gets a good seat and the poor man didn't get a seat. James says that sort of partiality is incompatible with your faith. And bitterness and selfishness is incompatible with the gospel because that's not how God acted towards us. It's completely opposed to the truth. And James is pretty blunt about that in verse 15. Look there in verse 15 and notice, this wisdom that produces envy and strife is not from above. He says in verse 15, this wisdom descendeth not from above. He's going to give three descriptions of it though. But is earthly, sensual, devilish. Earthly just simply means it's not from God. It's not from above. Remember in chapter 1 he told us what does come from above? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. This type of wisdom is not one of those gifts from God. It's earthly. It's natural. It's down here in the mud. And that's the idea of the word sensual is natural or unspiritual or worldly. And then he says devilish. Ouch. It's really the word demonic. This wisdom is demonic. That's strong, isn't it? But James is pretty strong, isn't he? It really shouldn't surprise us by now to to see how blunt James is. He doesn't offer a lot of gray areas, does he? He's black and white. He says something, and he doesn't care how strong it sounds. Faith without works is dead. Yeah, but what about... No, no gray areas for James. He says, your tongue is lit on fire by hell. Yeah, but what about... No, there's no gray areas for James. He's just blunt and strong and makes us consider these things. And now he's blunt and powerful once more. If you follow bitter envious, uh, bitter envy and selfishness, that's demonic. Yeah, but what about... No, no what-ifs. Bitterness and selfishness is from the devil, not from God. I know it's strong. God doesn't want bitterness and selfishness in our hearts. God doesn't want those things tearing up his churches. Satan does. He would love to disrupt the peace and the harmony and the love that we have here for one another. He would love it. It's not what God wants. And if we follow worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, if we let envy and strife take root in our hearts, it will happen. Notice verse 16, for where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. The idea of confusion here doesn't necessarily mean confusion in the sense of misunderstandings or that we don't know what's going on, that we're confused about something, but it's confusion in the sense of, of an unrest or a disruption among a community. It's, it's the opposite of peace. It's the oppo- opposite of things going well and running smoothly This is turmoil. This is disorder. And along with that's going to come every evil work, James says. Not good works, not fruits of the Spirit, but every evil work. Just think about this. When people let selfishness and bitter envy affect their treatment of others, then what evil work is off the table? if they truly let bitterness and selfishness control them, then we shouldn't be surprised what else they do. It doesn't produce godly things. It doesn't promote harmony and peace. It results in, in anarchy and disturbances. Basically, when earthly wisdom takes control, you're going to get earthly results. In in short, earthly wisdom will destroy a church, and it'll destroy your life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not the author of confusion. That's the same word there. But of peace. God's the author of peace. And that's mentioned in verse 17 and 18 when James now gives us the picture of godly wisdom. It's completely different from earthly wisdom. It doesn't promote divisions, but it promotes peace and unity. It's a complete 180 from earthly wisdom. Notice notice verse 17 again. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Doesn't that sound better than bitter envy and strife? than demonic things. Instead of being demonic, it's pure. It means it's holy, it's, it's innocent, it's undefiled. There's no, there's no ulterior motive. There's no harmful motive. Why is that person really being nice to me? Just because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's pure. Instead of creating rivalries and divisions, it does the opposite. It's peaceable. True godly wisdom promotes good and healthy relationships between man and God and between man and man. It's false wisdom that destroys things. It's false wisdom that destroys peace through selfishness and bitter envy. But godly wisdom builds up and and promotes peace. James says here in the middle of the verse that Wisdom from above is gentle and easy to be entreated. And this, these, these words kind of work together, and it's an awesome idea here. The word gentle has the idea of being gracious or forbearing or yielding or tolerant. And this other phrase about easy to be entreated, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And it really means easily persuaded. And it doesn't mean that you're easily persuaded in the sense of compromising truth or compromising morality. That's not what James is talking about at all. So don't, if you think of a situation like that, that's not what James is talking about. But it's someone who is open to reason. It's someone who's even willing to give in and let someone else have their way. Whereas earthly wisdom wouldn't do that. Because earthly wisdom is jealous when someone else gets their way. Earthly wisdom is so selfish that it will do whatever it takes to get its own way. But godly wisdom will lead you to listen to others and have a cooperative attitude rather than pushing your agenda at all costs. And again, we're not talking about doctrinal issues. But just being together. Think about how wonderful it would be to work with people who were gentle and listening and cooperative. Not just in church, but hey, how many of you want to work in a workplace that's like that? How many of you want to go to school that has a, cl- a classroom like that? Or Listening is good. Cooperative uh, things, that's, that's good. That's what That's what heavenly wisdom will lead us to, is is being open and listening and, and cooperative instead of selfishly having to have our own way all the time. You can work well with others if you follow heavenly wisdom. Notice at the end of verse 17 all the sins and issues that just melt away when godly wisdom is followed. Since godly wisdom is full of mercy... It goes right along with what James said at the end of chapter 1, this pure religion that's, that's undefiled before God the Father that visits orphans and widows in their affliction. That's mercy. Since it's full of good fruits, then it works along with faith to produce good works in your life, which James discussed in chapter 2. Since it's without partiality, you don't have to worry about that sin James mentioned at the first part of chapter 2 where you had the rich man and the poor man come into your assembly. If you follow godly wisdom... You won't have to worry about partiality. It doesn't lead you to that. And finally, since it's without hypocrisy, you don't have to worry about the inconsistency of your speech that James just taught about. You won't bless God and turn around and curse the man if you're following godly wisdom because it's without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom won't lead you to be a hypocrite. None of those problems that James has already mentioned Would be an issue at all if we would simply follow godly wisdom. And if we lack wisdom, what should we do? Ask. Ask God for it in faith, and He will give it to us. If we'll humbly let ourselves, uh, if we'll humble ourselves and let God's Spirit lead us and follow His wisdom, all of these inconsistencies that James has harped on and, and, and that disgust him will be gone in our lives. Follow godly wisdom and those things go away. Look at verse 18. Finally, James emphasizes once more the the peaceful results that godly wisdom produces. He says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I love what one author says about this uh, verse. He says, The fruit of righteousness is not only sown by the peacemakers, but they also enjoy the results of their work. And he says, Motivated by this heavenly wisdom, they aim at reconciling quarrels and bringing men into peaceful relations with each other as brothers. And in so doing, they themselves share in the blessings of the peace and fellowship that they promote. Like a farmer who works his crop and then gets to eat the fruit too. Be a peacemaker. Remember I said one time how much James sounds like Jesus, specifically with the Sermon on the Mount? Doesn't this sound like one of the Beatitudes of Jesus? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God is a peacemaker. If God wasn't a peacemaker, none of us would take another breath. Yes, God is holy, and He's just, and He's righteous, and He's everything that goes along with that. But he desires peace. And that's why he sent Jesus to die for us. If you want peace with your creator, that only comes through Jesus Christ. I know some of our young kids had this memory verse this morning in their Sunday school class, Romans 5.1. I won't ask them to stand up and say it. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never repented and trusted in Christ, you need to make that decision today and you'll have peace with God. Without Christ, there is a division between you and your Creator. But He wanted peace with you so much that He sent His Son to die for it. He will give it to you if you'll repent and trust him. And that's where following heavenly wisdom in our lives begins. It starts with Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he said in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It all goes back to Christ. In Christ, God became a man to reveal his power and his love and his wisdom to us and to bring us peace. And yet we are so often the ones with bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts. And it is completely opposite of the way God treated us. I asked you earlier, where does your wisdom come from? Which wisdom are you following? Well, according to James, it's pretty obvious. Which one of these describes you? Is it earthly wisdom that's about selfishness and about getting your own way no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter who else you hurt? Hey, that may be fine for this world. The world may praise you for winning, period, regardless of who you hurt in the process. But godly wisdom is different. It's not from around here. It's a southerner ordering sweet tea in Detroit. It's different because it's not about you, it's about others. Earthly wisdom tears down, but godly wisdom builds up and unites. It promotes peace. So just ask yourself, who are you? Which wisdom are you following? Are you tearing people down? Are you selfish? Do you have to have your own way? Or do you listen? Are you gentle? Are you merciful? It's a pretty easy distinction to see. The next time our fleshly nature tries to take over and pushes us to, to follow earthly wisdom instead of godly wisdom that promotes peace, let's stop and take a breath. And be thankful that God promoted his peace through Jesus Christ. And if we think about how God was to us, that ought to change how we are to others. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads as we prepare for invitation. Father, thank you for this day and thank you for your word. Lord, we know that James is blunt and challenging, and we, we pray that you will help us to submit to your spirit and your word and, and follow that uh, that godly wisdom from above that that promotes peace and gentleness and, and mercy, and Lord, help us to, to reject the, the earthly, selfish, bitter envy of this world. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. If there's someone today who's lost and never trusted you, we pray for their salvation, and we pray for anyone else who needs to make any decision about following you this morning. Forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.